All right, so we're gonna get started this morning with our lesson, and uh, I got a short video as part of our lesson too this morning, so I wanna make sure that we have plenty of time for that. Um, but let's go ahead and pray. Let's have someone pray for us this morning, and then we will dive right in to our stuff this morning. Come on, come on, anybody in this room? Benjamin, thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this day. Thank you that we can come to church and learn about you um, and sing praises to you. I pray that um, you use Stephen's message and lay it on our hearts and that we would do what you're telling us to do. And I pray that we'd all have a good day. And for the Bible study coming up, that many people would come and that their lives would be changed. Amen. Okay. All right. So what have we been talking about for the past several weeks? The tabernacle. Yes. Okay. So we've been talking about the tabernacle. And so what I want to do to kind of kick things off, what have been a couple things that you have learned or some different things that maybe you've not thought of quite the same way as we've been going through these lessons over the past three weeks that really stood out to you about the tabernacle? Yeah. Like how you have to take care of your sin first, like the first thing you enter. You don't remember what it's called, but where you have to sacrifice and like you're the one who has to do the dirty work. Yes. Somebody else doing it for you. Yes. That's just between you and God. Yep. Yep. With that brazen altar at the door of the tabernacle. Yes. That you do. If you if your sin's not taken care of, if your sin is not covered by blood, then you cannot enter into God's presence, and it's the very first thing at the door of the tabernacle. What else? Yeah. Was it the altar like five by five? Yes. Five cubits by five cubits. Yeah, five is also the number of depth. Yes. I think it's so cool how, like, detailed God is. Like, He does everything for a purpose, even, like, the little things. Yes. Yeah. It is. And remember, if you, if, when you've read through Exodus, Deuteronomy, even a little bit in Hebrews, when it talks about the construction of the tabernacle and even of the temple, God specifically told Moses that he's going to build it or that he built it after the pattern that he saw in the mountain. So when he spent 40 days and 40 nights upon the mountain, he actually went into the third heaven and there is a temple, there is a tabernacle that exists in heaven and he was supposed to build it exactly after that same pattern. So the details that we find in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all these things are exact replicas of what actually exists in the third heaven. And so God does that on purpose. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't make mistakes. He wants things to be constructed a certain way. All right, what else? Do you have another one? I thought you raised your hand. No. Nope. Okay, do you want to raise your hand? Just kidding. All right, <laughs> who else? Anything else? Sam. So, this is like, we talked about like just it being covered with brass and stuff like that. And yeah. Not necessarily something from the lesson, but I went and like studied gold, silver, or started to. Yeah. And just being able to take something as simple as like a medal in the Bible and study it out and the pictures that it has. Is yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to the rule of Bible study, the consistency of God. The once he defines something within the first dimension, that you can find that consistently all the way through the scriptures. It's really kind of cool. I love that. All right. Anybody else? Okay, another big takeaway that I want to hit before we move on to the next one is that when you're approaching God, you have to approach Him on whose terms? His terms, God's terms, not yours. We live in a culture where people want to redefine God. They want to approach God only on their terms. And you cannot do that. You cannot have a relationship with God if you want to approach Him on your terms. You have to approach Him on His terms. And that's why we spent some time talking about uh, that brazen altar last week. All right, so 
that is our picture that we've been looking at and we've been drawing this up on the board but as you can see you've got the entrance to the tabernacle this would be the door of the tabernacle and the very first thing is this brazen altar and that was last week's message and we talked about that if any person had anything where they were offering a sacrifice unto the Lord whether it's a a peace offering or a sin offering or a burnt offering or a free will offering just to say thank you to God they would bring that sacrifice to the door of the tabernacle and remember the picture you have a guy who is offering this sacrifice on behalf of himself or or himself and his family and they're presenting that animal whether it's a goat a lamb an ox a dove whatever and they're presenting it before the Lord and the priest looks at it and says okay this is acceptable and then it says in Leviticus chapter 1 that they laid their hand on that animal and they would then talk to God they present it to God as this is the sacrifice of so saying God I'm giving this to you because I am thankful or God I am I am offering this as a sacrifice to you because I have sinned against you I've gone against your commandments and then they would kill that animal, they would collect that blood, and they would sprinkle that blood all the way around that altar, and then they would cut it in pieces, and they would gut it and flay it open. And remember I used the example of, you know, gutting a deer and how fun that was? Well, I just did that yesterday, by the way. So I was thinking about this from last week. And so I was thinking about all that and how messy it is and how gross it is. But when you do that, especially in atoning for your sin or giving that sin sacrifice to God, this is what he wanted to be done. He wanted that sprinkled all the way around. He wanted it cut in certain pieces. Certain things were taken out of the camp. Other things were completely burnt in the fire. And then you would lay it on that brazen altar, on that grate that's in the midst of that altar. And remember, that fire upon that brazen altar was supposed to be continually burning. And it was to never go out because it's a picture of hell. Yes, of hell. Did you say that too? No. Okay, all right. I wanted to give credit. So you said it first before Caleb. It's, it's, oh, that's right. That's right. All right. All right. So anyway, so yes, it's a picture of hell and that judgment of sin. It was covered in brass and all that stuff. So all these things God wanted them to do on purpose, for a purpose. And so that's where you have God's presence now in the tabernacle. And now we're moving our way a little bit closer. So now you have here the brazen altar. And today we're going to be talking about this brazen labor, the brazen labor. And then we're going to be moving on into the holy place and then the most holy place. We're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come. Okay, so the big thing about this that I want you guys to get into is understanding that it's about being right with God. And, and as I've been like, thinking about this and, and working through stuff and I'm reading through Deuteronomy right now and the, the pieces and parts that I've been reading is that God was doing this on purpose. Remember, they spent 400 years in Egypt. When you study Egypt, what is Egypt a picture of? The world. Are you going to say that? Okay, the world. Somebody cheated you out of it. So the world. And for 400 years, they're in the world, and it is ruled by Pharaoh. And when you study out Exodus, Pharaoh is a type of the Antichrist, a type of the devil, and they, he, they're living in his kingdom. And so they're used to the ways and the patterns and even the pagan worship of everything that's going on in Egypt. And now God rescues them, and now he is setting things in order and redefining things, and he gives them this tabernacle because he wants to spend time with them. So as you take a look at this, this is a way for them to become sanctified unto God. For them to learn what does it mean to be holy? How do I actually be set apart? Well, in order to be set apart, I have to do things different. And so God began to do a lot of these things to show them, listen, you have to be different. 
You are my people. I've called you mine. I have purchased you, and now I want you to have a relationship with me. And that's why we spent time talking about last week that the beginning of your relationship begins here. It begins here at the very at the door of the tabernacle with that brazen altar of that blood covering you, covering your sin. And you cannot have a relationship with God unless you are born again. If you are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot enter into God's presence. It's impossible. And so every sacrifice you find in the book of Leviticus, every single one of them, if you study them out, every one of them, Jesus fulfilled them completely. He is our burnt offering. He is our sin offering. He is our peace offering. He is our, our free will offering. He's all of them. He's all the offerings. He's the fulfillment of all of that. So if you want a relationship with God, it begins right there. And that moves us on into the next place. But I found this video that I wanted to show you guys because it really helped me as we we're going to complete the outer court today. It really helped me to think about uh, the tabernacle and helped me to think about some of these Levitical laws that are kind of weird uh, that a lot of people just don't understand. And so I wanted to show you guys this here real quick. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is a part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system. It's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place. It's the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful, 
what's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal. And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now there's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness, he's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development, this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus's purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness, and that he and his followers were now God's temple, so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now, but... Where's this all headed? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Is that helpful? I thought that was really cool. This is one of those things as I was looking at this, you know, you can look at these sorts of things and, and just see and say, well, they're just doing all these rituals and what's the whole point? And the whole point is that God was trying to teach them something. That you're supposed to be my people. I brought you out of Egypt so I could transform you so you can go and transform the whole world. Because that was what they were supposed to do. 
And so the direct picture is, knowing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things we're talking about, is that the moment that you become born again, and you now have the Spirit of God living inside of you, you are now supposed to be a different person. And as that different person, carrying the presence of God with you everywhere you go, you have the ability to touch people's lives and to change them eternally. So all these things are just beautiful pictures and not just some old stories that you see in the Old Testament. And if you're willing to take the time to really sit down and consider these things, it can really change your life. It can change your life. Okay, so now we're going to finish out the outer court today because we're going to be talking about the brazen laver, the brazen laver. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Alright, so you guys have this picture on your guys' study sheet as well. But this would be a uh, resemblance of this brazen laver. And so you would have this giant bowl-like thing that would be filled with water. And we're going to read that here in a minute. And you have then the foot of it here. And this foot was to be made of mirrors so that way they could see their reflection when they were stooping down to wash their hands and also to wash their feet. There's no specific dimensions given about this thing, but you do know that it is brazen. So again, it is covered in brass. It is made of brass and it is filled with water. And so in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21, we have God's instructions on how to build this thing. All right, give me a reader. 17, 18, 19, and someone else read 20 and 21. So you got the first one. 17, 18, 19, and someone do 20 and 21. Okay, go ahead. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt make also a, a, a labor of brass, and his, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal, and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water there. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their feet and their and shall wash their hands and their feet thereof. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they die not and it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. Okay, so again, according to your study sheet, it has no specified measurement. As we just read, there's no particular measurements. It's supposed to be like the brazen altar where it was five cubits by five cubits, and it's supposed to be a certain height. There's no specific measurement. The labor was made of brass. You see that in verse 18, right out of the gate. So that's your first blank, should be anyway, brass. The labor was made of brass. And again, brass is a picture of what in the Bible? Judgment. Judgment. Brass is a picture of judgment in the Bible. When you study that out, you'll find that that is a consistent meaning throughout Scripture. So it is made with brass. This labor was set between the altar and the entrance to the holy place. It was set between the altar and the entrance to the holy place. Again, I'll draw the picture up here. So we have our tabernacle area. And again, this is north, south, east, west. You got your door. You got your brazen altar here. And then you have your brazen labor. And then you have this here with the holy place where you have the table of showbread, which we'll talk about. 
We got our awesome candlestick that I'm really awesome at drawing. Looks like a terrible tree, whatever. And then you have the altar of incense. And then you have the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. So this is how it was set. Every time they would go, they would set it very specifically upon this particular compass. So this side was always north, south, east, and west. Then they always camped out very specifically around it by tribe. And so they came in, you had the brazen altar. And now you have this brazen labor. So as you can imagine, the priests, when they were serving, and again, there's no place for the priests to sit in this area because they're constantly moving. But the priests, as they would minister, they would say, okay, someone comes in here and they have a sacrifice that they need to, to, to put on this brazen altar. So they would come out and they would wash and then they would go and then they would do all this part helping that person as they're taking care of their sin or they're offering their sacrifice and then they would come back and they would wash their hands and their feet before they would come back in here. So it was against the law for them to go and do this and not stop here. This is very important. And think about this, just practically speaking as well. Not only are they helping with these sacrifices, so they would have blood on their hands and all over their garments and things like that, but they're out in the desert. That's where the tabernacle was. So as they're walking back and forth, what would also be a problem? the dust upon their feet. And so as they're going, they have dirt that's now on their feet and they would come here to this spot and they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet. Specifically for a reason. And again, it was made with these looking glasses as well, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. So I got this verse as well. I wanted to show you this one. Thou shalt set the labor between the tent of the congregation and the altar and shalt put water therein. Again, between... Anywhere in between, they were supposed to put it, but it's supposed to be put the altar and this spot here, the holy place. All right. And he set the labor between the tent of the congregation and the altar and put water there to wash withal. And Moses and, his, and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet thereat. So this labor was filled with water for washing the priest's hands and feet to minister. To minister. And then lastly, under this first point up here, the labor with its foot were made as a mirror for the priest, mirror, for the priest to see his reflection as he washes, as he washes. And again, this is kind of the tail end of another verse that I forgot to mention. When they went into the tent of the congregation and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And then as far as the mirror, there's this verse, Exodus 38, verse 8. And he made the labor of brass and the foot of it of brass of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So this thing was made with these mirrors so they could actually see their appearance. If they happened to have anything on their face, they could see it and they could wash it off. If there's anything else that they needed to see, then they were able to wash those things off properly. So it seems very, very simple, but here's the point. They could not go and they could not serve God with unclean hands and feet. I want you to think about that. They could not go and serve God properly without clean hands and clean feet. They could not. They've already been sanctified and set apart under the service of the Lord. They already went through all the rituals and everything to make them priests and to do all this service for the God. But they could not continue to serve God unless they washed their hands and feet with water. Okay? All right, we got that so far? Okay. So now let's talk about the Bible 
and how this works out as far as New Testament spiritual truths. So spiritual truths for our admonition and learning. Spiritual truths for our admonition and learning. Okay, so here's the first one, and this one's a big one. The Bible, as water, cleanses us daily as we, anyone want to guess it? Apply or obey. Apply it to our lives. The Bible as water cleanses daily as we apply it to our lives. Let's turn to John 13. John 13. This is why we are so big on reading and studying your Bible. Now Ephesians 5.26, we're not going to read that one this morning. But Ephesians 5.26 talks about the fact that the Bible is as water. The washing of the water by the Word. And there's a great uh, illustration here that Jesus has with His disciples that really illustrate this. Alright, so uh, Jesus is getting ready to die. And before He dies, He has His disciples together. And it says in verse 4, He riseth from supper, and laid aside His garments, and took a towel, and girded Himself. After that, He poured water into a basin basin, very similar to that labor, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. See, this was Peter's problem. Peter had a huge problem. I mean, I'll give him credit where credit's due, okay? So you have this circumstance unfold where you have the Son of God coming to wash his feet. And he's like, no, 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 no. You shouldn't be washing my feet. I mean, I would hope that would be all of our reaction. I mean, if anybody's feet should be washed, it's Jesus's. And that should be something that I should be doing. Jesus should not be washing my feet. But even as you read this story, none of the disciples, when they came in, offered to wash Jesus' feet. They didn't do that. But now, after dinner's over, he takes his clothes off, changes them, he has a towel, and now he begins to wash his feet. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't wash my feet. He's like, listen, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. Oh, okay, well then, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. I'm like, okay, Peter, come on, like, (laughs) this is what he does. And look what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. And he's talking about Judas there. But he's saying, listen, you're washed. You're washed. Like, that's a done deal. Like, it's over. You're washed. But now you need to wash your feet. You need to wash your feet. And this is such a beautiful illustration of the Word of God. If you think that you can make it day in and day out and not spend time in God's Word, you are terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. And you know it. I know it. I know when I try to spend a day where I'm not spending time with God, guess whose wisdom I am depending on to make decisions in life? Mine. Mine. Every time I get into God's Word, He changes my mind. He makes me to think differently. And I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm born again. I know I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, so I'm washed. But as I'm walking through this world, the wilderness, dirt, the disciples, same thing. 
your feet are going to get dirty. Then your hands are going to get dirty as you're out there doing your thing. And so you need to go to the water of God's word to see the error of our ways on a daily basis and to think differently or else your life is going to be a mess. I've seen so many people, I've seen so many students that don't do this. And as a result, their life is a train wreck. And they're making the most of it, and they're making the best of it, but it's not God's best. It's not what God wants. And I've seen a stark contrast between people that are doing what God wants them to do, and they have peace, true peace, in their life. Doing what God, they know God wants them to do. And then I've seen on the other side, people that do not do what God does at all, and just trying to make the best of it on their own, on their own wisdom. And they're, they're making it along, but deep down they know, they know, they know they're not doing it the right way. And I'm telling you, the most miserable people on the face of the earth are people that are born again, they're washed, but their hands and their feet are not clean. Because you have the Spirit of God inside of you if you're born again. And He can't stand it. You can't, you can't serve God without having clean hands and clean feet. You can't. I don't care what you're doing. It's never going to last. You have to, you can't expect to serve God and, and just expect that everything's going to be fine. You have to deal with your sin. That's why we talked about this first. You have to deal with your sin first. There has to be a sacrifice. And then, after that's happened and you are born again, now you need to wash. This is a beautiful picture of what's called the, the judgment of the daily believer. That every single day you should be judging yourself with the standard of God's word. And if there's anything wrong, or if there's anything off, you should be making some course corrections. But if you're never spending time in God's word, if you're never praying to God, if you're never with God's people in God's house, then you're never going to be confronted with those things outside of the Spirit of God convicting you like crazy. Telling you that you need to be in the Bible. Telling you that you need to be praying. Telling you that you need to be in church. Telling you that you need to be obedient and you're just not doing it. Which is why those people are the most miserable people on the face of the planet. So this leads us into our next point. The Bible is not only like water, but the Bible as a mirror. Set your blank on that one. The Bible as a mirror judges and reflects who we really are. It judges and reflects who we really are. Let's go over to James chapter 1. And somebody else go to Hebrews 4. Let me get a reader. Let's do in the back. Uh, go ahead. You can take it. Yeah, you. Yeah, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Everyone else go to James chapter 1. This is one that we know well, but listen to it as if you've heard it for the first time. James chapter 1. All right, Dustin, why don't you read this one? 21 through 25. James 1, 21 through 25. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity and naughtiness and receive with meekness and engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceive your own selves. For if any be hearers of the word, and not doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, in, and goeth this his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continue therein, 
he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Perfect. Thank you. All right. So he goes through all this stuff in James 1, and then he hits verse 21. Wherefore, because of all these things, which if you just look back at verse 20, look at verse 20. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So you can't expect to be angry and sinful in your anger and be righteous. It just doesn't work. And that's just one example of some things that he, he gave right above. And so he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save, save your souls. And this is not just talking about eternal salvation. This is talking about every single day. Every single day, the Word of God can save your soul. Again, not eternally, circumstantially. In the situations that you're in, you will make sound decisions. And you will walk in wisdom if you walk with the Lord in His Word. And you can have confidence, not arrogance. You can have boldness because you're spending time with God in His Word and you know what to do. And that's why it says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We live in a time where it is so easy, it is so easy even for myself, to hear the word of God and say, Yes, that is true, and then walk out the door and not do a lick of it. And to convince myself that I'm fine. But really, until you obey what God has told you to do, you're not fine. It's about obedience. You really do not believe something until you obey it. It's very simple. I remember even when I learned how to water ski. Like, I had no business teaching anyone to water ski until I actually did it myself. And it's complicated, especially with the different things you have to do, the way you put the skis on, the type of skis that you use, the length of the rope, how you hold the rope, when the boat's going, how to put your knees in a certain place. And so here's what I did when I first learned how to ski. The guy who drove the boat, expert skier, he's been doing it for a long time. I got into the water, I listened to every single thing that he said. Every single thing that he said, I did. And I was nervous, super nervous. And if I peed my pants, it's fine because I'm in the water. So I was very, very nervous about it, but I did exactly what he told me to do. And when I did exactly what he told me to do, I was successful. And then after doing it over and over and over and over and over, I began to teach other people how to ski. And guess what I did? I went back to that first time that I learned how to ski. I'm like, hey, what did he tell me to do? Okay, and then as I did it, what are the things that I learned as I was working those things out? Okay, now I can impart that wisdom into somebody else. It really is that simple. It really is. I have no business teaching you the Bible unless I am actually doing it myself. None. You have no business telling somebody else how to walk with God unless you're walking with God. And that might be the problem. That might be the problem. is because you're not walking with God. So learn how to walk with God and then actually do it. Because it says in verse 20, 23, If any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like, another great word picture, unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. That natural face, that sinful face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. He has no reason to change because he forgot about it. But, and here's where it really comes to, to light. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that is the scriptures, and continueth therein, which means you don't stop. He, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You can't expect to receive blessing from God if you don't obey what he's told you to do. You can't. I mean, you can be saved, 
That's what the Bible talks about even at the judgment seat of Christ. You can be saved, and you can make it even through that judgment that you're saved yet so as by fire. You're saved because that Spirit of God is living inside of you, and no one can take that away from you. But as far as your life and being fruitful and glorifying God and living your life to its fullest potential, God's potential for you, you cannot be blessed by God unless you obey Him. And I'm telling you, obeying Him will go against every fiber of your flesh. There's going to be things inside of you that is going to want to stop you from being obedient. And you have to learn to neglect those things, to forget those things, and to obey God. And I promise you, you will never regret obeying God. Never. It might be hard. It might be painful. And it might be difficult. But I have never regretted it. Never. Never. Oftentimes it's been the most difficult road. But it has been the best road. And it has yielded results that I could have never imagined in my life. Even as I sat and listened to the Bible being taught and preached. Like, I heard it and I believed it and I saw, I'm like, man, that would be amazing. But when I went and I actually obeyed God, God did above and beyond anything that I ever thought in my mind. Because that's how He is. He works like that. Alright, listen to James, or not James, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Okay, I love this. So the Bible, the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, but it's a He. Yes, it is Jesus. It is the Spirit of God. He wrote the Bible. And it says very specifically in that chapter that it pierces even the dividing of, what are the three things it says? Soul and spirit. Thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the third one. What's the second one? The joints and the marrow. There is nothing deeper in a human body that you, you, can't, you can't really separate the joints and the marrow. I mean, you can, but it's extremely painful. Right, Jamie? <laughs> you can go in with a giant needle, and you can stick that needle right into the middle of a bone, and you can suck out the juice that's in there. That's like common man's terms. And it's super awesome, isn't it? Like, you're really hungry right now that I said it that way. <laughs> no, just kidding. But the Word of God is like that. It gets down into the very depths of who you are, to those places that no one else can separate those things. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Sometimes we can't even judge our own thoughts and intents of our heart. Because we're deceived by our own emotions, by our own feelings, by so many different things. But I'm telling you that the Word of God is able to do that. And that's why it's so convicting. That's why we need to be in it. Because I can't trust my own heart. I can't trust my own mind. And so as I get into God's Word, this is what happens. You get into God's Word and you have a good heart attitude and you are wanting to walk with Him and you're letting your life open before Him because your life is already open before Him but you're doing it willingly as a free will offering. And you do that and you say, God, teach me and show me. And the Spirit of God uses the words of God's Bible and it jumps out of you and it convicts you because there's things that you can't see and you can't know unless you are working in concert with the Spirit of God, with the Word of God. And He brings those things to light. It's not enough just to be someone who says that they're a Christian and they go to church on a Sunday and a Wednesday. It's about what you do day in and day out afterward. It's what you do on Monday. It's what you do on Tuesday. It's what you do on Wednesday during the day. It's what you do on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Those are the days where you really learn how to walk with God. It is not enough to be a Christian 
and, be, and think that you can be fruitful and attend Sunday and attend Wednesday and think that you're going to be successful. It is not going to work. It's the personal daily time that you spend with God in His Word, working along with the Spirit of God as He convicts you from His Word. That's how it works. All right, and then the next point. So the Bible is an eternal book that will last forever. And so that's where I love this picture of the brazen labor, that the Bible is an eternal book. It will last forever. And that's an important thing for us to understand. Just like uh, the temple of God is already in heaven and he's making it after the pattern of it, the Bible also is an eternal book that will last forever and it will, uh, it will purify you. And then the next point, the labor is also a picture of the sea of glass. This is more of a fun little doctrinal nougat. So it's a picture of the sea of glass that will be removed one day. And just to show you a couple of scriptures on this one, you got Revelation 4, 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. 15, 2, And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having harps, having the harps of God. And then Revelation 21.1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So this is also a picture of the sea of glass. One day when God creates everything brand new again, there's going to be no more need to have this any longer. And so it's a really good doctrinal picture I wish we could dive more into, but we just don't have time to be able to do that. All right, and then here's the point that I also want you guys to be able to see. We've already mentioned it already. No believer is fit for service or walking with God until cleansed by the Word of God. And again, when I say cleansed by the Word of God, that means that you read it, you believe it, and you obey it. That's what we're talking about. It's not enough just to read and to mark it off your Christian checklist. It's reading it, you believe it, and you obey it. The word is not effectual until you actually obey it. Obey it. And so think about that. And, and practically speaking, I, I just think back over times where I have served God with sin in my life and how it never goes well. And it never lasts. Eventually it will burn out. But when I serve God, and I know that I have a clear conscience before God and I have dealt with the sin in my life, I've had a very fruitful time with the Lord and serving Him in whatever capacity, even if it's with little kids. You know, you're in a little kid class or you're in the nursery or you're doing whatever. Like you cannot, it is improper for you to serve God and do anything for the Lord if you have not cleansed yourself first as a born again believer. Some good verses for this one is sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Bible is the word of God and it is truth and it will set you apart. In John 15, 3, now you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And that was Jesus talking to his disciples. And again, he is that picture of that brazen, brazen labor. And so when I think about this, I think about several different things. And these are some ways for you to apply it. So out of all the things we talked about, this is what it really comes down to. And I really want you to think about this. These are good introspective questions. How often are you in the word of God during the week? Just on any given week, how often are you in the Word of God? And are you in the Word of God multiple times a day? Not just in the morning. Because there are days where, I mean, things are tough and I need to refocus throughout each day. It's not just, yeah, it's good to just read, you know, every morning, each morning, or do, you know, do your thing. 
But I'm talking about being in the Bible not just every day, but multiple times a day. <coughs> Even if it's just memorizing verses. Like there's certain verses that you need to memorize because you struggle with certain sins. There's certain things that are your weak spots. And even going through those verses and making sure those are always on your heart and on your mind. The more time you spend in God's Word, the more successful that you'll be. And again, we can go back to summer camp on that one. I mean, how many times throughout summer camp did you struggle with sin? I know you did because we were all sinners. But wouldn't you, if you were to compare it and say, okay, my life now, day in and day out, compared to when I was at camp, I sin a lot more now than I actually did at camp. And why is that? Because we spent more time surrounded by the Word of God in almost everything that we did. Almost everything. And so the more time you spend with God, the more practically holy you will be. And this isn't, I mean, this is not crazy. This is actually very logical. Because God is a consuming fire. And anything close to that fire, like that picture of that sun, it burns. So the closer you are with God, the more you walk with God, the cleaner your life will be and the better decisions you're going to make, practically, practically. Do you read God's Word, understand it, and obey it? Which means you can actually see tangible changes. That there are actually things in your life that have changed because you read the Bible and you did what it said. When was the last time that happened? When was the last time you read the Bible and then you changed your life according to what the Bible said and you could actually see it change you? It's been a while. You need to reevaluate some things. And how often do you serve God with unclean hands and feet? Even in little things. Little things lead to big things. They always do. So make sure that you are quick to judge yourself on a daily basis according to the Word of God. So what I love about this whole outer court, just to kind of close out the whole outer court section. So the outer court with the furnishings of brass... Uh, they tell us that before we can ever approach God, we must approach Him on His terms. We talked about that last week. So first, our sin must be atoned for at that brazen altar. That's God's judgment through that substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Second, after receiving that atonement, being covered by that blood, our hands and our feet must be washed in the laver. And that is the Bible, the Word of God, daily and throughout the day as we're walking around in the wilderness. And that would be this world, serving the Lord. A person cannot walk with God and serve God without being atoned for and cleansed by the Bible. Once those, things, those two things have been satisfied, a person can bring glory to God in his or her ministry. And that's where we're going to be going, because now that these two things, if they exist... Now, now we can actually get into here. And this is really, really cool. I love talking about the holy place because we've got several things that are here. And I'll just kind of give you a little bit, a little bit of a preview. So the table of showbread is the scriptures. The candlestick is the Holy Spirit. And the altar of incense is your prayer life. And so as you are saved and you are sanctified, you're washed, your hands and your feet... Now you can actually have fellowship with God as the Spirit of God illuminates the Scriptures for you as you read it and study it on a daily basis. And your prayer life will be fueled by these two things. This is going to be really, really cool. So I'm excited to get into the next part. Alright, that's it. That's the tabernacle. This stuff's kind of fun once you start getting into it. And you start reading parts of Exodus that you were like... <laughs> yeah, and then parts of Leviticus especially that will open it up a little bit for you. Alright, give me someone to pray and we'll be done. You can get out of here. Thank you, Sam. Heavenly Father, Lord, just thank you for this day. Just thank you that we get to come together. I mean, not only just meet as a group as uh, the senior high, but also just be able in a little bit to go and just meet with our whole church. 
Lord, I pray that when we come to church, Lord, um, it just bring joy, Lord, that it also just bring um, a sense of relief that we get to come and have fellowship, but also just get to hear your word. Um, thank you that we're getting to talk about the tabernacle and just um, something that we might not have studied out ourselves or really understood, but that you uh, let Stephen, you gave him words to speak to be able to expound uh, the pictures of it, Lord, and that I pray that we would apply it to our lives, uh, Lord, that your word wouldn't go void, um, but that we take it out and that we would be a light to the rest of the world. Um, I pray for just the rest of today with the guys event going on um, and also youth choir tonight, Lord, that it would go well and that we can glorify you in Jesus' name.